today on the Tearsheet Podcast. So many problems that can be solved by uh, accessing, or rather both accessing and then increasing the uh, uh, visibility into this much wider world of data to actually be able to say, hey, you know, someone may have a lower uh, FICO score, but because of all this new data that we have, we can actually show that that person is uh, a responsible borrower and they should actually uh, be able to access a much lower uh, lower interest rate, um, as well as, you know, being able to tap into someone's direct deposit and their paycheck in order to, you know, further de-risk things for the lender and again, um, increase financial inclusion for those who need it most. Welcome to the Tearsheet Podcast. I'm Tearsheet Editor-in-Chief, Zach Miller. If data is the underpinning of modern finance, payroll data is expanding the pie. Early data firms like Plaid, MX, and Finicity made it easier for lenders and other fintech apps to access banking data. But now, firms like Pinwheel and Argyle are opening up payroll data. Traditional W-2 work is evolving in the gig economy, and being able to access payroll data wherever it resides creates new opportunities to serve customers. On today's podcast, we have Kurt Lin, co-founder and CEO of Pinwheel. Lin's vision is that over time, Lenders will use the firm's payroll API to track their borrowers' financial health longitudinally. Fintech firms can assess borrowers' current income, whether they're showing up for shifts, whether they're getting paid consistently. We're at the beginning stage of payroll connectivity, and Lynn shares some interesting insights into current use cases based off of income verification, direct deposit switching, and payroll-linked lending. Lastly, we talk about where Pinwheel and payroll connectivity are headed in the future. Kurt Lin is my guest today on the Tearsheet Podcast. My name is Kurt Lin. I am the co-founder and CEO of Pinwheel, the leading payroll connectivity API. Uh, we are building the income layer for the financial system, and uh, we work with some of the largest uh, players in the fintech world to help enable things like direct deposit switching, income employment verification, as well as a suite of other use cases uh, to build what we believe is uh, the future of the financial system. That's awesome. Appreciate you being here. And, and it, it's interesting from, from our perspective, 2021 felt like kind of a breakthrough year for, for payroll data uh, and, and aggregated income information. Um, what, what's happening, I guess, in the background? Why now? Why is this all happening now? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think first off, uh, one of the things that we realized very early on in our journey is that, uh, you know, income is this really broad idea that is ever changing, right? And it used to be that, you know, every day you clock in, clock out, uh, and you generate your uh, income via this like hourly rate. And then even with salaried workers, the kind of foundational unit uh, of work has always been, uh, you know, basically this like hourly rate. What we've kind of seen now is uh, as the world has changed, especially with this future of work coming in, uh, the definition of income is really broader, right? And so there's a couple of things that are going on. Uh, number one, you know, there are still a number of people, uh, in fact, the majority of, of, of Americans are still working uh, on these um, hourly systems. But the big difference being that uh, the payroll systems with which all the data is actually being collected and the systems that are actually using uh, their platforms to distribute funds have finally gone into the cloud base uh, versus these kind of like older school systems, a lot of which were on-prem. And so we're finally seeing the infrastructure available to connect to this you know, wide world of, of income 
uh, providers. That's one. Two is you start to see this proliferation of all of these different uh, gig workers, everyone from, you know, an, an Uber driver to a, a DoorDasher. Uh, those are these new age platforms where income isn't being consolidated within these older school payroll systems like an ADP or a Workday, for example. And then thirdly, we're really starting to see this pretty interesting uh, shift away from, you know, these uh, traditional molds of employment where people are generating a substantial amount of their income from uh, everything from like an Etsy or a Fiverr or really kind of challenging that uh, older uh, world of what it means to actually have a job. And so we're seeing an increasing number of folks uh, generating most of their money from these uh, newer models. And so we also connect to those systems as well in order to make sure that we have the widest breadth of coverage and really can say with the most amount of certainty that this is you know, the full income picture for said consumer and said uh, member of uh, the financial system. Got it. And, you know, we've been covering the space of, of data aggregation for, for a few years here, starting with sort of, you know, bank aggregated data. And, and when we start talking about income, it seems to me like it's, it's a much bigger data set. Um, can, can you help to, I guess, size it for, for the listeners? Like, what's the technical challenge here, given the fact that, you know, people have multiple sources of income, there seems to be, a, you know, sort of a preponderance of new platforms to, to kind of, your, your coverage universe must, must need to be huge, I assume. Yeah, uh, well, the, the interesting thing is, you know, uh, as with any aggregation play, um, there is always some element of a power law distribution, right? And so, um, there is a you know higher density of folks at the upper end of the spectrum, but you're absolutely right. Like you know the the um, the to total hypothetical amount of platforms that we can connect to is endless, mostly because there's new platforms that continue to arise as time goes on, and also because, as I mentioned before, the kind of landscape around employment is shifting pretty rapidly, and so it, it's our uh, job to make sure that we're always staying as updated as possible and continuing to uh, you know do everything we can to eventually cover, you know, every single possible income source um, throughout the system. But I think it's also uh, a really interesting uh, opportunity to mention kind of why we do what we do, which I think is probably uh, the most important piece of all of this. Uh, still my the... Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, <laughs> I'm letting... yeah. yeah, appreciate it. Uh, so, you know, the, the impetus for starting Pinwheel is that for myself, as well as my two co-founders, uh, we're all second generation uh, immigrants and especially uh, coming from a, you know, uh, a family, uh, very traditional uh, Asian upbringing. The idea of carrying debt is, you know, anathema, frankly, to uh, kind of core parts of our culture. And so growing up, you know, my, my dad and my mom never really uh, applied for credit cards or anything because they felt like if you have the money, why, why would you do that? Right. And uh, I should also add that, you know, my dad was this, you know, extra hardo traditional Asian dad who was very stoic and, you know, never really showed that many emotions. It frankly took the guy, you know, 50, 60 years before he was even able to, you know, say, I love you. So that mm -hmm. kind of gives you an understanding of who he was. And so I remember growing up when my dad finally went to go get his first uh, mortgage, I, I remember, you know, coming with him as a, as a, a little kid and, we went bank after bank after bank and were unable to get a mortgage because he didn't have a credit score, right? And it was, it, that really stuck with me because it was the first time in my life where I'd actually seen 
the impact it made on him and, and seeing him crack, right? Like I could see how visibly frustrated and emotional he got not being able to, to be able to buy a home, right? Like to be able to fulfill this American dream that he had come here for. Um, and, you know, at the time, I didn't really understand what was going on because, again, I was, I was a kid. But um, I started, as I started to get older and I thought back to that moment, uh, it really started to, to click for me that, you know, this, the financial system doesn't work for um, a lot of people, right? Either folks who, you know, are lower income have never been able to actually engage with it in a responsible way. Uh, or, you know, folks who are new to this country uh, who just don't understand how it actually works. And so um, a big reason for why we're, we built Pinwell, why we continue to be so focused on fulfilling our vision is because uh, we see what we're doing as such a clear, tangible way to actually bridge that gap, right? There's so many problems that can be solved by uh, accessing or rather both accessing and then increasing the uh uh, visibility into this much wider world of data to actually be able to say, hey, you know, someone may have a lower uh, FICO score, but because of all this new data that we have, we can actually show that that person is uh, a responsible borrower and they should actually uh, be able to access a much lower, in, uh, lower interest rate, um, as well as, you know, being able to tap into someone's direct deposit and their paycheck in order to, you know, further de-risk things for the lender and again, um, increase financial inclusion for those who need it most. Uh, that that was a powerful personal story. I appreciate you sharing that with us, Kurt. And I guess taking that a step further, um, is the is the success or the growth or the 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 um, d- d- well, let me ask it differently. Does success of a platform like Pinwheel will that obviate the need for for um, credit scoring in the future? Is it is an alternative method where it's actually directly measurable um, what you're trying to credit worthiness exactly? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think uh, it's important to kind of take a step back and think about how lenders assess risk. And there's really two questions you always have to ask yourself, right? One is, what is the consumer's willingness to pay? And what is the consumer's ability to pay? And FICO scores are supposed to be a proxy for that first question, right? Like mm-hmm. here's a high level directional signal of whether or not this person, you know, has the willingness to pay. And the, all you can really do there is look at historicals, right? And that's that's why credit scores are the way they are. Um, and they, they, they do serve a function, right? But what's always been missing in this uh, big kind of picture puzzle is the second piece, right? Like, how do you actually get the right information to know if someone even has the ability to pay, right? Do they even have the cash flow and the income to support uh, what they are, you know, trying to uh, um, what what they're trying to acquire as far as like a financial product goes? And we are really focused on that piece first, and I think it's the combination of those two, as well as the multitude of other alternative data sets that allow uh, lenders and other uh, operators in the financial system to be able to make much smarter uh, decisions as well as uh, make decisions that are gonna be most beneficial to the consumer. And so I think uh, we certainly see a world where that income data becomes more and more important and you can start to do some really creative things around um, rethinking the paradigm of credit itself, right? So a good example of this is when you think about credit right now, it's very kind of transactional and a snapshot point in time. And what I mean by that is when you actually apply for everything from a credit card to a, 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 a you know auto loan or what have you, uh, at that point that you actually apply for it, the lenders are checking 
how much you make, where you work, et cetera. But once they actually give you the loan, it's kind of a black box, right? And you're kind of just like, well, I really hope uh, this person doesn't default. Um, what we hope lending will turn into as you know time goes on is much more of a longitudinal uh, perspective where we can say, hey, you know, here is uh, your loan now, but let us continue to you know provide visibility into someone's uh, income status and income health to be able to say, hey, you know, God forbid they are either terminated or furloughed or, or had a reduction in the hours that they've worked. Can we as the lender dynamically work with this person to, you know, either provide uh, some sort of relief, some sort of loan modification or what have you uh, to basically allow for number one, that consumer to not go into a, a deeper cycle of debt. And at the same time for the lender to also, you know, make sure that they uh, protect their their assets and do everything they can to maximize uh, their margins and their returns as well. And the funny thing is, it's actually a win-win because when a consumer defaults, it's it's actually a huge lose-lose, right? The consumer obviously, um, again, goes further into, into debt. And as the lender, now you have to repackage this then and sell it for pennies on the dollar to somebody else, like a collector or what have you, to actually recoup whatever value they can. And so it actually benefits both folks on, on um, either side of the table to make sure that you know, as you get real-time uh, information to use that to, you know, make sure that both people are um, being able to actually hold up their side of the of the bargain. So how, how close are we are to that sort of longitudinal approach that you're describing? And I guess, you know, as a, as a corollary to that question, like, can we talk about some of the use cases that your clients are, are using pinwheel data for? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, I would actually love, this is actually a great segue into, I think, um, this world of new financial products that we're really excited to be kind of the growth engine and uh, catalyst for. So uh, if we can take a step back and think about what we do, we provide connectivity into payroll accounts. And I should say, again, we consider payroll to be a, a proxy term for a much larger uh, and broader swath of platforms that are more broadly just anything related to income, right? And so everything from a payroll provider like an ADP to a gig platform to uh, these uh, new age um, platforms like uh, an Etsy or um, a eBay, for example. And what we really do is we enable two fundamental things, the ability to actually access data, everything from who you are to how much you make to where you work. And then also the ability to um, update uh, settings more specifically, direct deposit settings. Uh, and this is obviously a, a really big thing for a lot of the folks in consumer fintech, especially neobanks, right? And our thesis is that when you can combine the two together, the data and the access to uh, direct deposits, um, it's a really powerful combined function, right? And so when you talk about these use cases, um, you know, there are first order things that we can do, like work with our customers to enable really seamless switching of direct deposits, especially at the point of, uh, you know, account opening or account onboarding to make sure that they are, you know, moving their income to uh, their new account and to actually be able to get the most out of that um, experience. And then also uh, another first order problem around using that data to just broaden uh, the ability for our lending customers to actually verify the income of folks that otherwise they would have no ability to get real verified data from, right? So those are kind of just the really first two obvious ones. But the more interesting thing for us is as you start to extrapolate that and move that down the line from a roadmap perspective, uh, we can do really interesting things like enabling um, earn wage access, for example, 
right? Um, if you think about what you actually need to enable that, one is access to direct deposit, which we have, check. Uh, two is access to data to be able to know is someone actively employed right now? And uh, take it one step further, do you actually have you know, the time and attendance data to be able to say, hey, uh, you know, Zach clocked in and clocked out today um, for his eight hours at you know, Chipotle, we can, you know, with high confidence, be able to forward them, uh, or forward him rather, uh, his paycheck for the day, knowing that, you know, we have high signal that he's actually really worked his shift, right? And so that's a really clear example of us uh, enabling this idea that's been around for a long time, but has never really been perfected, and actually being able to build out uh, a product um, that will be, you know, meaningfully move both, I think, the uh, actual state of financial innovation forward, uh, but also taking a, a big step forward to helping uh, the really the financially underserved be able to kind of bridge that gap between paychecks. And so I, I, I can definitely go further on there, but uh, I want to stop and see if you have any uh, input around where you want me to take this. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's a great example. Um, I guess I'm, I'm trying to get a flavor for who the client base is and, and, and whether these are early adopters of this type of, of platform. So are, are these typically younger fintechs? Are they typically lenders? Um, can you give us, I guess, a flavor of the, of the, of the client base that you guys are currently seeing? Yeah, so we work with uh, a wide variety of folks. Uh, certainly, some of the you know largest names in fintech like uh, Squares, Cash App, um, and we also you know work with some of the um, more up and coming, uh, fast growing startups as well. I think where we really find our sweet spot is, uh, per your point, because of how nascent the market is. There are certainly a, a number of early adopters um, in the fintech space of all sizes. Um, that we are excited to partner with and, and co-build alongside. And then I would also say we're starting to see kind of the growth of this market uh, hit more of the traditional uh, financial sector as well. And so whereas a lot of the early growth that we saw was with these uh, fintechs, we're starting to see more and more folks in the traditional finance world wake up to the benefits of what we can actually do with our platform. And so as of late, we've actually gone uh, you know, meaningful traction with some of the uh, larger, older players uh, who see this as also the kind of springboard into the next uh, generation of uh, fintech companies. And so uh, I think what gets us most excited is, uh, you know, whenever you start something, uh, especially a startup where you're, you're basically trying to create a new market, um, you know, there's always a, a certain uh, kind of cold start problem, right? Where you're like, I... We, we see what, what, what the potential could be here, but you're not really sure you know, who those people are going to be because there's just so many things that you can actually do. And I think it's really exciting to see us ourselves now at the point where we're really at the you know, beginning of this hockey stick and this inflection point where uh, the value prop is just so blindingly clear to so many of our customers. And they're now acting as evangelists for us to go out into the market and say, hey, like this, not only does this work, this works really well. And it's starting to get the attention of the, of the folks who, as you and I both know, uh, take the the longest amount of time and move the slowest to actually adopt anything new. Yeah, that makes total sense to me sitting here. Um, I, I have a question, I guess, about your philosophy as it as it applies to being a steward of data. Um, how How far do you imagine Pinwheel will get involved in terms of not just connecting data points, allowing the, the data to flow, but but either enhancing the data, cleaning up the data, or providing added functionality, kind of up the value chain. Yeah, uh, 
we actually think quite a bit about this. And I think, you know, when you talk about data, there are limitless things that you can do to optimize and improve on it. But I like to think about it in kind of three phases, right? The first phase is just ingestion. And even though it sounds really simple in theory, the idea that you can basically ingest data in a way that actually, you know, ensures the integrity of the data is actually quite hard, right? Especially because you're both trying to expand coverage as quickly as possible to this, you know, wide, vast world of income sources. Um, but two, also being able to actually build the foundational data structures to make this uh, data actually recognizable, first of all, right? And so that's kind of the first phase. The second phase is what I would call, uh, per your point, normalization, which is now that we have you know, high quality source data, can we actually clean it up and in some ways kind of package it in a way that it's actually usable by our customers, right? And you know, for anyone who has spent a lot of time in the data aggregation world, again, this stuff sounds easy, but it's in actually incredibly difficult to do because the, the reality is a lot of our customers want the data um, organized in a way that is immediately usable from the get-go, right? Like what you don't want is to have to give them a bunch of raw information and then they're sitting there trying to figure out what do I do with this, right? Um, and so I think we're, we, we've certainly uh, made a ton of progress through the first phase. And I think now we're very much um, in this uh, second phase where we're starting to see a lot of different ways to organize the data to be the most impactful and useful for our customers. And then the third piece uh, which I think will be a, a long pole and will be kind of the, the future of this platform for years to come is uh, what I would call the translation layer. Uh, but basically, once you have all this data really normalized and cleaned up, what can you now build on top of it to provide surplus value to your customers, right? And so it's everything from, as you mentioned before, uh, potentially building our own version of a, of a score but instead of it being off of historicals, now you're basing it off of someone's um, income and employment status, right? Um, and uh, the whole idea of kind of answering the question of ability to pay in a much more programmatic fashion uh, to also building things like a 52-week a uh, income volatility index, uh, as well as, you know, especially if someone is a gig worker, um, being able to provide a overview of their kind of seasonal dips and changes so that people have a much clearer sense of, uh, you know, the, the true risk profile, the true income profile uh, of, of any consumer. Um, and I think, you know, the being that we're in phase two, uh, we are starting to actually work on a couple of things in phase three. We're really excited about um, rolling these things out uh, going into next year and where else we can go from there. That's exciting. I have to imagine a few of those things. Um will provide a lot of value to your clients. Uh, in the remaining time we have, Kurt, uh, I'm curious how, how you're, as CEO, how you're handling scaling within the company. Um, how are you finding talent? How are you building the company? What are some of the challenges and opportunities that you're facing there? Yeah. Uh, so I would start with a couple things. One is, before I go into the company building piece, which I absolutely adore and you know I could spend hours and hours talking about, um, one thing I should mention is, you know, uh, kind of related to the last point around data as well. When you're handling such sensitive consumer information, it is really, really important that you, you know, have things buttoned up, especially if you're dealing with larger enterprise customers, right? Like uh, security is just something that is a uh, table stakes and non-negotiable. And for us, that's been something that we're really focused on. Uh, one is uh, the fact that especially 
with all the data that we have, and especially the use cases around lending, um, we made a very concerted decision to actually um, be in full compliance with the Fair Credit and Reporting Act and actually have established ourselves as a CRA entity, a consumer reporting agency, which means that, you know, unlike uh, some of the other data aggregators in the space, um, we took a hard line stance to say, hey, you know, we want to be responsible for our data so that if uh, any adverse action stems from the use of our data for a consumer, we ourselves are directly liable and responsible for that, right? Whereas I think some of the other folks uh, will kind of provide more of an argument of, oh, we're just the pass through, mm -hmm. uh, just a gateway, and thus are not responsible for those, for the outcomes related to the data that is provided. And so we think if you want to actually be a cornerstone and pillar for this system, you need to be responsible for the output of your, of your product, right? It seems kind of like a no-brainer. And so we kind of made that choice very early on. And I think that's really um, paid off dividends for us um, in the market. And then the other thing I'll say is, um, you know, very early on, we brought in uh, a CISO and, you know, um, got our stock two type three compliance and all the, um, the right certifications. Because again, like with something like this, like you only get one chance, right? Like if you, if you really care about the consumer's well-being, which we do, then securing that data in a way that really leads the market is really critical for us. So I would say that's kind of one piece around um, how we think about um, the future of the business. And one thing that is just for us really, really important. And then to answer your question about kind of um, the challenges uh, around growing this business, I think uh, I'm sure you hear this from every single uh, person you talk to. Uh, this market is so competitive from a, a talent standpoint, but candidly, I think our, our team has done uh, an incredible job uh, really building uh, what I see as uh, the cultural foundation for you know massive growth and massive success down the line. And I think it's because we've been very intentional from the get-go about how we think about our culture, right? So to give you an anecdote, uh, between the, my two co-founders, Curtis and Anish and I, uh, we interviewed over 60 to 70 engineers before we made our first three hires. Wow. And the reason, yeah, <laughs> I will tell you, uh, spent probably, you know, a painful amount of time doing so, but we thought it was well worth it because given our prior experiences, we knew that, you know, that a company is nothing without the people that are there and the early people have the outside impact on that culture. And even though we met with a lot of exceptional engineers, technically, uh, what we really wanted were people who were great um, cultural fits. And what I mean by that specifically is um, there's a couple of key tenants that we really focus on that we think are predictors of success, not only in Pinwheel, but I think any startup. Um, and, you know, under that umbrella, I think are kind of, uh, you know, four really big pieces. Uh, one is what we call grit, which is basically, as anyone might define it, just are you willing to run through walls and accomplish your goals? Uh, two is resourcefulness. I think some people might call this scrappiness, but basically, um, are you able to just see problems and figure out the solution versus kind of sitting there saying a problem and then complaining that the problem is there, but, you know, aren't, aren't able to actually solve for it on your own. Um, three is natural curiosity, which I personally have found to be the biggest differentiator between good and great um, operators. It's just like, how willing, how deep are you willing to go on any problem? And the, the folks who go deeper are the ones who inevitably understand how the product and the system really works and are thus able to find those kind of earned secrets and hidden gems that really allow you to differentiate yourselves uh, across the uh, a long timeline. And then last but not least, there's this really interesting idea that um, the 
Collison brothers that Stripe really pioneered, which is this idea of you know craftsmanship or I guess craftspersonship. And uh, it's this idea that not only do you take great pride in your work, but uh, there's this certain you know care that you really take when you truly feel like the, the product and the output of your work is a reflection of yourself, right? And so it's everything from being detail-oriented to doing that little extra or going that, that little extra step because you know that what you're putting out is just you care so deeply about it, right? And I think above all else, the, the thing that I'm most proud of is everyone on, on this team cares so, so deeply uh, about what we do and how we do it and how well we do it, I should say, because, you know, we, we see that what we do can actually lead to a, a tangibly uh, better financial system and tangibly better financial outcomes for those who really need it. Yeah, it's clear that you're, you're, you're very thoughtful about the work you put into, into leading this company. Kurt, thanks for joining us on the Tearsheet Podcast today. Thank you, Zach. This has been an absolute pleasure and I really appreciate you taking the time.